May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I was in seminary and serving at a church, and an older man came up to me to give me his advice on how to get young people into church. I was surprised to hear this suggestion, considering I was the only 20-something in the congregation, but there we were, so I listened. He said, if we want to get young people in the church, we need to get rid of the confession. Goes on. We're all pretty good people here, he explained. I mean, nobody wants to sit down and feel bad about themselves. How do you explain to someone that basically no one under 40 expects positive things to happen in the world ever again? That we know with scientific detail how the human race has gone wrong and how impossible it will be to get it back on the rails, half of the country burning up every summer, 17 million gallons of our sewage spilled onto California beaches, knowing one-third of black boys will spend time in jail. We know exactly the number of people dead trying to cross our southern border, fleeing violence and poverty in their countries, the worsening polarization of our governance, and national conversation, 100 tons of dead marine life in Florida's red tides this summer and the songbirds of Pennsylvania dying off. Yeah, we're all pretty good people as long as we limit our scope to like the barest sense of it. You know, today I didn't murder anyone. Important, <laughs> important, but kind of, a, kind of an entry-level expectation for being a good human. We know more than ever that the world we humans have shaped is in trouble. And one of the reasons I fell in love with this church, the Episcopal Church, is that it's the only place I know of where people get together every week with the express purpose of acknowledging what we all, past our obfuscations and denial, know to be true, we have gone wrong. The world offers us all sorts of ways to avoid taking ourselves into account, but here we face it head on every week. Personally and individually, right, the way we've gone wrong in our lives, relationships, work, but also we say it as a whole group, communally, with others, the things done and left undone. It's more like getting in touch with reality than it is a guilt trip. We get one of the most famous examples of this essential Christian act in our readings today. Here's the story so far. We left King David last week. You will remember that we found him being exactly the sort of king that Samuel had warned that the Israelites would get when they got a king. David sent off others to fight his wars while he stayed home, sleeping late on his comfy couch. He'd taken a powerless subject named Bathsheba and impregnated her. 
And then in order to cover up his misdeeds, he brought home her husband Uriah from the war David wasn't fighting in. But Uriah would not relax and sleep with his wife while his mind was on his fellow soldiers meeting death on the battlefield. So David sent Uriah back to battle with a secret message to have him killed on the front lines and then to pull back from him. There's this twisted little detail in the, in the story in the Bible that says Uriah delivered this note to his commander with his own unknowing hands. It's diabolical. David succeeds in getting Uriah killed. Before our text picks up this week, Joab, the commander of the army, gives the orders to withdraw the troops from around Uriah. And it's a reckless maneuver, foolish. Some of David's own favored men, his friends, die because of it. Joab sends this distressed letter to David, saying that his plan has been carried out. David has this sigh of relief. He's safe now from being seen. The Bible says he writes Joab back and says, Look, don't let this trouble you. This is how war works, isn't it? Some people die, some people live. There's nothing fair about it. Forget it. Don't let this bother you. But the thing that David had done bothered the Lord. Last week, I told you that this was a story about what power does. And it really is reprehensible. It seems entirely outside of our own smaller lives and spheres of influence. We are all pretty good people around here comparatively, aren't we? But one of the dangers of telling you that this is a story about power is that you might understand it only as a story about power. You know what the Bible says about David? How it describes him? That he's the man after God's own heart. The only person described this way. The man after God's own heart. Not in terms of greatness, but in goodness, righteousness. It tells us this. And never flinches in telling us what the greatest of us is also capable of. Like a reminder that this, if this germ of destruction and degradation and depravity is alive and well, even in the person the Hebrew scriptures honor beyond all others, the greatest monarch, the storybook hero, the man after God's own heart, if that is in him, what are we capable of? What's, what's in us? C.S. Lewis puts this another way. Some of us who seem quite nice people may, in fact, have made so little use of a good heredity and a good upbringing that we are really worse than those whom we regard as fiends. Can we be quite certain how we should have behaved if we had been saddled with the psychological outfit and then with the bad upbringing and then with the power, say, of Himmler? That is why Christians are told not to judge. 
We see only the results which a man's choices make out of his raw material, but God does not judge him on the raw material at all, but on what he has done with it. The things that David does to try and avoid the consequences of his life are magnified for us through these awful lenses of power. But it does remind you a bit of what all of us do, doesn't it? Even in kids who can barely talk, they can figure out astoundingly quickly how to point a finger, how to pass the blame, to say that they accidentally bit their sister on the cheek. I mean, how many grown-ups do you know who are confronted with their own failures and sin and who don't excuse or spin or pathologize it? Our capacity for self-deception seems pretty limitless. You are the man. Nathan tells David. And so how much more does a confession cost David, the most powerful man in existence, when confronted by a lowly prophet? But he does confess. The story doesn't end happily. The consequences will remain for him. But from this, we get Psalm 51, which you all chanted so beautifully earlier. And it's there where we learn about what confession does. There's a sense that when we pay attention to what's happening in the world, the enormity of the problem, the disarray in our hearts, that we feel this sort of aimless guilt, sorry without really knowing exactly who we feel sorry to. It's all bound up together and complex and historic and current. It's a sort of aimless, undirected lament. Psalm 51 directs us to the right audience. It says this vague feeling is directed to someone. It says who we've heard above all is our maker. It's not the law of nature we have offended when we take what we desire with only ourselves in mind. It's not Uriah, innocent and righteous, who gets through in teaching us innocence and righteousness. The psalmist claims that it's only God's steadfast love and mercy that has a chance in changing him now. In the end, it's the word of the Lord that can end our excuses and renew our hearts. It's, it's why every week we have a confession which, by the way, we're keeping. 